Well, good morning, family. Good to be in the Lord's house today. I encourage you to take your Bible if you would. We're going to be in the book of Daniel in chapter 9. And this morning we're going to focus just on four verses. But these four verses are in many ways like an ocean. Uh, it, it, these verses are like an ocean. And we will note this morning as we come to these verses that we'll note the expanse of the ocean as far as the eye can see. We'll breathe in the salty air. We will go wade in the water and splash around a bit. We'll feel the powerful movement of the surf in and out. And perhaps we'll play in the sand. And my aim here is to help us, as it were, to take in as much as we can of this marvelous text. But like the ocean, it is not possible to even begin to exhaust the riches and the depths of what is here in just these four verses. Dr. Harry Ironside, a renowned author and speaker, pastor of Moody Church for uh, quite a while in the last century, uh, he said about this passage that it is the greatest of prophecies. Dr. John Walvard, who for many years was president of Dallas Seminary, my alma mater, he was also, I knew him best as just the dad of one of my good friends, uh, he said of these verses, they were the keyhole of Bible prophecy. In other words, verses that unlock all the rest of Bible prophecy. Chuck Swindoll, who many of you listen to on the radio, he quotes Sir Edward Denny, a theologian from the 19th century who calls these verses the backbone of prophecy. Then Chuck Swindoll goes on to add, he says, but it is also true that Fewer predictions in Scripture have been interpreted in as many ways as have these few verses. And he's right. These verses, they are deep, they are rich, they are the source of an awful lot of controversy among Christians. And with all that in mind, I'm going to try to keep us out of the weeds as much as possible and in the fairway. And... Hope to stick as closely as I can to that which we can clearly see from simply a plain reading of the text, along with perhaps some insight from a few other passages. In this particular passage, the ESV translation, which is normally an exceptional translation, but in these particular verses... The ESV is at odds with the King James Version, the New King James Version, the New American Standard Version, the New International Version, the ASV, the American Standard Version, the uh, Net Bible, if you want to go there. or um, Well, I, I could list basically every translation you've heard of, and it's pretty much at odds with all of them. And I think wrongly so, and I'm no language scholar, but I contacted our resident language scholar, who's Larry Dyer, and uh, Dr. Dyer assured me that I'm right and they're wrong. And uh, actually what he assured me is the other translations are much better and uh, I'm not right about any of it. But uh, So what I d- wanted to do instead of spending all our time talking about what's different about the ESV, which really doesn't matter, is I wanted to focus this on the text. 
And what I did was simply print out for you here the New International Version, which is a translation we used for some 30 years here uh, until recently. And uh thought I'd take, it, take us back to this, because the NIV basically parallels all the other translations I mentioned uh, almost word for word. So uh, with that in mind, this is our text this morning. And why don't you follow along with me as I read it? I'd invite us all to read together, but generally... If you read this much, you probably spend more time following the words than actually paying attention to what it says. So follow along and I'll read. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. No one understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to the sacrifice and offering, and on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. A lot of stuff there, and you may be looking at that, and and especially if you're not really familiar with that, you may just go, what in the world is that just saying? Well, let's begin and find out. I'm just going to step us through these verses and uh, we'll talk about it as we go. Verse 24 is basically a summary of the passage. It gives us beginning point and it takes us to the end. Here's what happens at the end of all of this. He says, 77s are decreed for your people. 77. Some of your Bibles, if you have the King James, the New King James, or or if you even look in the ESV, some others, we use the words weeks. 70 weeks are decreed for your people. It uses weeks there, if if that's the translation you have, in an unusual way. It literally is the word seven. What it means simply, the, the Hebrew word there is the word shabal, and what it, Shabal means is a group of seven, a group of seven anything, a group of seven pencils, a group of seven ducks, a group of seven years. It's much like we use the word dozen. We can have a dozen of anything. Or we use the word duo or trio that way. There's actually a technical English word that means a group of seven. It's called a heptad. And probably the reason they didn't translate it using the word heptad is because None of you knew what a heptad was till I told you. But here it is referring to periods of time and specifically, I think, years. The context is years. If you were here with us last week, last week we were in the first part of Daniel chapter 9. We've been in a series looking at the life of Daniel, the story of, in Daniel, the storyline. Half of the book of Daniel is story. Half the book is prophecy. Our focus since January has been the story of Daniel. And actually we finished that last week in the first part of Daniel chapter 9. And 
That left this week open. Next week is Palm Sunday and then Easter. And this passage here at the end of Daniel 9 is just a perfect transition into our celebration of those. We'll get to that in a moment. But let me give you the background for these few verses. Last week we saw that Daniel was reading in the scroll of Jeremiah. And he came to the part in Jeremiah, in our Bibles is Jeremiah chapter 25, where he read that, that the, the desolations, the exile of God's people when Babylon came and conquered uh, Judah and these po- folks were taken to exile in Babylon, he read that this was supposed to last for 70 years. And Daniel, having read the Scripture, understood that, that God was going to take them back. The people needed to pray and confess. And, and uh, Daniel began right then to pray, confess his sin, confess the sin of the, the people of Israel and to ask that God would forgive them and restore the nation and do exactly what he had said he would do. As Daniel is still praying, right here he's interrupted by the angel Gabriel who gives him this message from God, this prophecy of these four verses. This is God's answer to Daniel's prayer. Daniel had been praying about 70 years of captivity that it would end, and God answers with the prophecy about 70 sevens of years. Or, if you do the math, 70 times 7 is 490 talking about a period of 490 years that's the what of this of these verses the who of these verses daniel is told is the your people and your holy city daniel had been praying about his people the jews and about the city jerusalem the holy city because the temple of god had been in jerusalem until it was destroyed And don't miss that as you try to understand these verses that the focus is all on the on the Jews and it's on Jerusalem. And then we get the the why of these seventy sevens. What what's the purpose of the seventy sevens? What is what at the end of it all, when the dust settles, the seventy sevens are finished, the four hundred and ninety years are finished. What do you have? There are six things that are listed there in verse 24. He says that transgression will be finished. The Jews will be done with their rebellion against God. He goes on, sin will be ended. God's people will be done with sin. Wickedness or sin will be atoned for. It will be paid for. Everlasting righteousness will arrive. Everything will be made right. The world will finally be what it ought to be. Vision and prophecy, it says, will be sealed up. In other words, all of God's promises for His people and for His city will finally be realized. And lastly, it says, the most holy will be anointed. The most holy is probably referring to the anointing of the Messiah as King, So it possibly could also be referring to the consecration of the the holy place, the holy place in the temple. And again, I would say it's probably referring to the temple in the Messiah's kingdom. You see, because what's described when you look at those six things and you go and you look in the other Old Testament prophets, Isaiah and, and the other prophets, what you discover is that this is 
what is described as the kingdom, the kingdom of Messiah, the kingdom of God that is coming. You will see all of these things there. So, in other words, what this prophecy says is at the end of the 490, the kingdom is here. Verse 25. Verse 25 moves on now that verse 24 kind of gave the introduction and a summary. Verse 25 tells us about the first 69 of the 77s. We wonder if there's 77s, and or 490 years, and the end of it's going to be all these things. When did the 490 start? And that's what is answered right here at the beginning. No one understand this from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That's the start. The start is a decree. The clock starts ticking when there's a decree that's issued to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. What's intriguing and makes this a little challenging is he doesn't tell you here when it started. You have to go look. But you go looking in your Bible and what you find is that there were actually four decrees given while the Jews are captives. Uh, They're still in Babylon, I should say. The first was issued by King Cyrus, 538 B.C. Isaiah actually predicted that prophecy several hundred years ahead of time, even named Cyrus by name. That's a whole other story. Cyrus issues this decree and it was to send Jews back under a guy named Zerubbabel and it was to he made provision and gave authority to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. You see that in the Bible in Ezra, the book of Ezra chapter 1. A second decree was issued... In 520 B.C., so 18 years later, by Darius, not the same Darius as, as you actually see named in chapter 9 of Daniel or in chapter 6 of Daniel, but Darius won. And the decree that he issues is a reconfirmation of Cyrus's decree because there were folks back, the neighbors of Israel who were opposing Zerubbabel's work and the other folks' work to rebuild the temple and they asked for Darius to issue a, a confirmation that yes, they have the right to do this. There was a third decree issued by King Artaxerxes in 457 and it was given to Ezra to lead other more Jews back to Israel, especially went with him were a lot of priests and Levites and temple workers and Artaxerxes gave to Ezra, finances, funding, supplies, things needed to... The the temple had been built, but the worship was not really going on in the temple because they were lacking a lot of what they needed. And so Artaxerxes decreed that that should be done. And then there was a fourth decree in 444 B.C., And that decree, also by Artaxerxes, granted permission to rebuild the walls around the city of Jerusalem. And that was given to Nehemiah. Actually, there's a whole book in the Bible that's dedicated to that, Nehemiah. And you find the decree there in chapter 2. So with four decrees that sent Jews, each one of them, with each one of those, more Jews went back to Israel. And as I understand it, I think more of all 
all of them probably could have back, gone back under the first decree of Cyrus, but a lot of them just kept hanging around. The reason for that is after 70 years in Babylon, a lot of them had put down roots and things were pretty nice. And when things are pretty nice, it's hard to just say, let's pack up and go back to a place that we don't know and that we, this generation had never been. And so it took a while for a lot of these folks to head back. Which decree was it, though, of these four that is starts the clock ticking? Well, the first three decrees were all about getting the temple built and getting the worship get going at the temple. The last decree that Artaxerxes gave was to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. Those walls had to be built in order for the city to be safe and habitable. In other words, at the time that, that Nehemiah goes back to Jerusalem, what, what he discovers, Nehemiah chapter 2, is the city of Jerusalem is still in ruins. The temple's been rebuilt, but the city is in ruins. The, the streets are still so cluttered with debris from the, the destruction that he can't even get through the streets on his donkey. And so this last decree is actually the one that led to the rebuilding of the city. As it says here in the text, it was, would be rebuilt with streets. <laughs> you can actually go down. And with a trench. That word trench is kind of an obscure word. And it means a trench or a moat or it can refer to walls. Basically, it means, it means a city that has fortification. You had to have the walls put up to have a city that could be protected from enemies. So most scholars would say the decree that starts the, the clock ticking here had to be this last decree of Artaxerxes in 445. That's a lot of technical stuff, sorry, but it's kind of important if you want to understand what's going on. So the start of this, these 77s, the start of them was a decree. But then the 77s are broken out. And in this verse, it talks about the first 69 of the 70, and the 69 sevens are broken into two groups. There are seven sevens, and there are 62 sevens. And the text doesn't really tell us why the break between these two, why, why is it broken up? Why didn't he just say 69 sevens? Well, apparently, we can't say for sure, but apparently what it means is that first seven sevens, seven times seven is 49, the first 49 years is what it took to actually rebuild the city. The city was in ruins when Artaxerxes gave that decree. And 49 years after he gives that decree, the city of Jerusalem is rebuilt. The walls are back up. The streets are open. People have moved in. By the way, because nobody lived in Jerusalem, by the time Nehemiah got there and they actually got the city rebuilt, the city was built, but nobody was living there. And nobody really wanted to move in because they were all happy out where they were living. And so they actually had to have a lottery where if your name was called, your number was chosen, they chose 10% of the people who lived in the area around Jerusalem and made them go move into the city. <laughs> so 49 years, apparently, the city is rebuilt. People are living back in it again. And then he says there's another 62 sevens. But notice this. From the issuing of the decree, he says, until Messiah comes, the promised one. That, that word uh, in your text, it says their anointed one. Anointed one is the same Hebrew word for Messiah. The promised one, the anointed one. 
The Jews would have been looking for the promised One to come. The One who's going to set up the kingdom. And God says here that when this, when this decree is given, you can count it off. 483. 7 plus 62, that's 69. 69 times 7. Do the math. And Messiah comes. That's astounding because what He just did if you're reading what Daniel writes, is you can look and say, when a king issues a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, start counting. And when 483 tick by, Messiah shows up. Now 483 years, years later, you're dead. But however many generations later that is, if people have been following and keeping track, and they can say, you know what? It ought to be close to when Messiah comes. We ought to be getting close. You know, there were actually an awful lot of Jews, an awful lot of people at the time of Christ who were expecting a Messiah to show up. Interestingly, among them were some wise men out in the east who came looking for a king who was born. You ever wonder why the wise men showed up? Well, where was Daniel writing? In the east, in Babylon. These wise men are reading the scrolls of Daniel and knowing there's a king ought to be showing up one day. <laughs> That's a whole other story, but uh, it wasn't in my notes. I shouldn't get off script. The Messiah should show up. Did it happen? Well, if you go from, let's take that last decree, 445, 444 B.C., and you tick off 483 years where you land is A.D. 38. Right in the ballpark of the time of Jesus. Remarkable. 500 years before Jesus Christ came, Daniel writes and says, here's when He'll show up. And even just a quick little glance at the figures and you go, we're in the ballpark here. Jesus showed up. It's a marvelous validation of Jesus' claims to be Messiah. It's a powerful evidence of the reliability of the Word of God. May I say that most scholars think that Jesus died close to 33 A.D., around 33, and 38 is close, but He would have already been dead, resurrected, and ascended to heaven before that number came around. And that's close, but I have a feeling God usually gets more than close, don't you? Well, unlike our calendar of 365 days, uh, 366 on leap year, if you notice that, the Jewish calendar had, at least the ancient Jewish calendar, had 360 days in their year. What that meant was that every so often, the Jews would realize their calendar is way out of whack and they would throw in an extra month, just kind of get it back in sync. But their calendar was 360 days and scholars have hasn't gone without note that if you take a Jewish calendar year of 360 days, multiply that times 
483 years, what you get is 173,880 days. I just did that in my, ma- in my head. And uh, what you realize is that if you take those days and start at 45 or 40, 445 or 444 B.C., you end up in 32 or 33 A.D. Harold Hohner, in his very classic and scholarly work, probably one of the best of many such things, such works, has even laid out a scenario which it's not just spot on getting us to 32 or 33 A.D., but he lays it out where it's to the day. From the day that Artaxerxes gives his decree, March 4th, 444 B.C., Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a colt on the foal of a donkey on what we will celebrate next week as Palm Sunday. It was exactly 483 years to the day that Jesus came. And that, that we, what we often call the triumphal entry was the official presentation of Jesus as Messiah to Israel. I'm not nearly smart enough to critique Harold Honer's work to say that he's exactly right or not. And I don't think we'll ever know till we get to heaven. What I do know is this. We serve a big God. And I don't think God gets close. I think God always hits what He aims at. And I have a feeling when God said, from the issuing of the decree until Messiah the Prince, it's 483 I have a feeling God nailed it spot on. That's the first 69 sevens. Verse 26 keeps going. And what verse 26 says is, read the first words. After the 62 sevens, the the seven sevens happened and the 62 sevens have now happened. So it's after 69 sevens. And verse 26 tells us what happens after the 69 sevens. Again, if we thought just pinpointing that the arrival of Messiah was astounding, this prophecy gets even more staggering. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one, the the Messiah, will be cut off and have nothing. That alone, that's shocking that the Messiah would be would be cut off. After all, the Jews have been anticipating the Messiah. They've been waiting for the Messiah. They've been looking for the Messiah. They've been longing for the Messiah. Who would ever think the Messiah would be killed? Cut off, have nothing, rejected by Israel. And yet, over 500 years before Jesus comes, God says the Messiah is going to come and He's going to show up after 483 years. And when He does show up, He'll be rejected and cut off, literally killed. And we know what happened five days after Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, presents Himself as Messiah. The people are saying, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Five days later, Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's been rejected and executed. None of it is a surprise to God because it was all in His plan. And here you see that God even said it's going to happen before it happened. There's more astounding stuff here. 
Daniel has been praying for his people and for his city. And his concern is that they're in exile and they're looking forward to going back to the land. And he's just been told that they are going to go back to the land. They're going to get back there and they're going to settle down. And they're waiting for Messiah and Messiah is going to show. Now he's told Messiah is going to be cut off. And then look at what happens next. The city and the sanctuary, the temple, will be destroyed. Everything that Daniel has just been praying would be made right is all of a sudden going to be destroyed again. And you, if you know your history, you know it's exactly what happened. But 37 years after Jesus, the temple was destroyed. 70 A.D. And notice who he says destroys the temple. The temple is destroyed in an unusual phrase. He says, by the people of the ruler who will come. Not by a ruler, not even by a coming ruler, but by the people of a coming ruler. And that makes us wonder, who is this ruler who will come? Well, we just look at who destroyed the city. The city was rebuilt 49 years after the decree went out. The city and sanctuary were destroyed after Jesus the Messiah was rejected. Who destroyed the city? Rome. The Romans. This is a ruler of the, the people who destroyed the city. The Romans destroyed the city, so this is a Roman ruler. And then it says, the end, or even better translated, its end comes like a flood. Have you ever been somewhere where you watched raging floodwaters go by? Maybe you've seen them on TV. Have you noticed that the water of a flood, it just sweeps everything in its path along with it? And that's what God says here is going to happen when this destruction of the, of the city and the temple take place. It's going to be like a flood and just sweep everything with it. And when the Romans under Titus destroyed the city of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., it was like a flood went through. It leveled. They leveled everything. The temple not only was destroyed, but as Jesus had predicted in, Je in Matthew chapter 24, not even one stone was left upon another of the temple because when they burned Jerusalem, the temple burned and all the gold melted and ran off the temple. And so they, they lifted up and tore up all the stones of the temple so they could get the gold. Not one stone was left unturned and the Jews those who weren't killed and in that destruction they were scattered from the land exiled whereby the way they remained exiled from the land until just less than a century ago he also says this an interesting thing he says wars will war will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed yeah, I explain it, I think, this way. It makes probably it's better understood. He's saying that there will be no peace for the Jews. Remember, the focus of all of this is the Jews and Jerusalem. The word wars there means hostilities and conflicts. He says the Jews, until the end, until this whole period is over, 
they are going to experience conflict. They are going to experience persecution. They are going to experience sufferings. The desolations have been decreed for them. Sufferings. This is their lot until the 77s are done. Verse 27 continues and it describes for us the final seven. The last seven. Four things it tells us here will happen in this last seven, the last seven years. It says, He, and we wonder who the He is. He makes a covenant or a treaty with many and we wonder who is that He. Well, the He... In, Grammatically, if you ever studied grammar, and most of you had to at some point or other, if you want to know who a, prote- who a pronoun refers to, you go to the nearest or the closest preceding noun. You work your way back in the text, and that is the ruler of the people who destroyed the city. It's a Roman ruler. A Roman ruler makes a covenant, a treaty, with the many. Who's the many? That's Israel for seven some Roman ruler is going to make a treaty with Israel for seven years. In the middle of the seven, it says, he puts an end to sacrifice and offering. He, he breaks the treaty and he stops sacrifice and offering in the temple. And then it says, on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation. He desecrates the temple. And then this ruler meets his end when the end that is decreed for him by God is poured out upon him. God's decree destroys him. Now, this, uh, uh, all of this passage, all of this section, I said there's tons of different views from people out there, believers out there, but the, particularly this last verse and this last seven is the hotbed of controversy. And the big question is, is this seven, this seven years, something in the future or is it something in the past? There are an awful lot of Bible teachers who put this in the past. Many of them are really good, good, solid Christians who love the Lord. And some of you may agree with them and you are free to do that. Personally, I believe this text, this is describing something in the future. If you disagree with me, we can still have sweet fellowship as brothers and sisters in Christ. This isn't a matter of whether we're going to heaven or not. But since I have the pulpit, <laughs> I'm going to tell you just a few reasons why I think this is still future. And if you want to debate me, I'd love to sit down and have coffee or lunch or whatever. Let's talk. Because we're brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ and we love the Word of God. A couple of reasons why I think this is yet future. Just a plain reading of these verses leads you through a chronology which we have just outlined. And as you walk through this chronology, the events that happen in verse 26 happen after the 69 sevens, but they happen before the 70th seven starts. And it would appear that at least for a brief time, a time that includes the, the cutting off of Messiah, the crucifixion of Christ, and the destruction of Jerusalem, the clock is stopped. 
Along with that, the, verse, the events of verse 27, as you go back and look through history, there is no adequate event that you can look at in time and place and people you can look at that fits the description of what happens in verse 27 in the past. Lots of efforts to try to point to in the past, but all of them, in my opinion, fall far short of what's outlined here. And so it may well be that this pause button is still pushed because the events of 27 haven't happened yet. The biggest reason, and it ties in with that, is we go back to the first verse that we started with, verse 24, which is the summary and tells us the end, the end results of what happens when all the dust is settled. When the 77s are done, what do you have? The kingdom. An end to transgression. God's people are done with their rebellion against God. The Jews are done with their rebellion against God. They are not living in sin anymore. Most Jews in the world today are in rebellion against God. They are not certainly not believers in Jesus Christ. The Messiah is not on His throne. Everything is not made right. Prophecy there's still plenty of prophecy that has not been fulfilled and yet it says it will all be done. It will be sealed up. If the results of the 77s haven't been finished, then we might presume the 77s aren't done. And so the 70th, the, those last group of sevens, I think, are still in the future. One question this might raise is, well, Pastor, are you saying then that there is a future, that God has a future planned for the Jews? Because there's an awful lot of Bible teachers and Bible preachers out there that don't believe that. And if you ask, Pastor, are you saying that God has a future planned for the Jews? My answer is absolutely yes. As we finish up this morning, let me just show you why I think very clearly God's Word says that is exactly the case. The Apostle Paul asked a similar question to that in Romans chapter 11. He asked this, he says, I asked then, has God rejected His people? Is God done with the Jews? He just said, that's it. Jews, you're done. <laughs> it's all about the church. It's all about people coming to faith in Christ, and the Jews as a people are done. Any promise that they made to them are null and void because they rejected Jesus. Paul says, is that the case? Has God rejected His people? Romans 11.1, 1, he continues in, in that verse. He says, by no means. In the next verse, verse 2, he says, God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. God knew that they were going to mess up. God knew that they were going to continue to be rebellious. God knew that they were going to, re to reject the Messiah. God knew all that, but He hasn't rejected His people. Let me trace a thought through some Scriptures that maybe you've never put together this way before. Back in the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, as Moses is giving the law to a new generation of Israelites as they're about to go into the promised land, he, he actually writes a song that summarizes a good bit of it and, he, and God speaks 
in that song, and this is what God says, Deuteronomy chapter 32, they have made me jealous with, their, with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. God says, so I will make them jealous with those who are no people. You're going to mess around with gods that aren't God and make me jealous of your affections? Well, I will get your attention with people who are not a people. Now, flip on over a few thousand years over to the New Testament in the little book of 1 Peter and listen to how we as Gentile believers are described there. Once you were, what does it say? Not a people. But now you are God's people. Once you hadn't received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Are we wrong to try to put those two thoughts together? No, look at what Paul goes on in Romans 11 and says this. So I ask, did they, that's Israel, stumble in order that they might fall permanently, in other words, so that they will never be Never be rescued? Again, he says, by no means. Notice, listen, because this is where it gets really cool. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And get this, so as to make Israel jealous. <laughs> God wants to, still has a plan to rescue the Jews. He goes on, Paul says, one more verse to look at, later in that, just a few verses later from that, he says, lest you Gentile believers get wise in your own sight, in other words, lest you get conceited, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. He will banish ungodliness from Judah. God has a plan for a day when He will redeem a generation of the Jews who will finally be a, a generation that loves God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And His plan to do that involves you and me. It's how we are here. God, God has a day in the future, Daniel tells us. It's at the end of these 77s when finally, as the summary told us, Israel will be done with sin, done with rebellion. They will be following God. Jesus will institute His kingdom and everything will be all right. And God's means uh, in the meantime of doing that was bringing you and I to faith in Christ and He's going to take us into the kingdom along with them you wonder, well, if that was all going to happen, why didn't Daniel just say all that? Well, because Daniel didn't say it. God did. And what Daniel was focused on was his people and his city. You and I weren't part of the picture of his people and his city. We're just at that little parenthesis between when he pushed the pause button on the, on the 69 sevens and then before they start the 70 sevens and there we are. But am I not right that it's clearly here in Scripture that this is God's plan? What that lets me know is that God is... 
as we notice the whole theme of this book of Daniel, God is sovereign. God's in charge of everything. And God is doing stuff that you and I just have no clue. It's no wonder that Paul's response to this, just a few verses later down in, in Romans 11, he says this, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. There's so much you and I don't understand. I don't understand why God saved any of us to begin with. When, 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 when we messed up, why didn't God just take His big, huge boot and just squash us? Assuming God had a boot, sandals, bare feet. That doesn't. Why didn't God just wipe us out? Instead, what God chose to do was rescue us by Himself becoming a man, dying and taking the punishment of our sin upon Him. Why did He do that? I haven't a clue except that God says, I love you. This is the only way to rescue you. Brothers and sisters, that's the celebration we're coming into in these next two weeks. God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son. So that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. If you're here this morning, you've never heard any of this before, and it's just boggling your mind, just understand this. God loves you, loves you so much. He became a man to take the penalty of your sin. And all He asks is that you trust Him. He says there's forgiveness and there's eternal life. God's doing myriads of other stuff and we're just getting the tip of the ocean. You know, we're just, we've waded in a few inches into the ocean of what's here in these verses. But doesn't it just make you, all of you who are believers in God, in Jesus, doesn't it just make you go, wow, we serve a big God. May the reality of this encourage you this week. As surely as Jesus showed up on schedule, even as God had, had promised, He showed up right on schedule in order to pay for your and my sins. And we'll reflect upon that this next week. Just as surely... He's going to come back again as He promised. And we're going to be with Him forever and ever and ever. May that encourage you this week to live for Him. To cling a little less tightly to the stuff of earth that is going to burn up one day. <laughs> to live for the real treasures that last forever. And to be busy doing what He left us here to do, and that is to tell other people about Jesus. Because God is not willing, He's not desirous that anyone perish, but that everyone, the Bible says, come to repentance. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. It's marvelous. It staggers us. We'd love to, we'd love to, to look at more and, and, and dig in some more, but we're weak and frail. But Lord, thank You for what we've seen this morning. I pray that we wouldn't just see it and go, wow, that's cool, and leave the same as when we came in. But I pray if there's anyone here that doesn't know Jesus as their Savior, that they would see and understand that this stuff isn't just fables. It's not just stories. 
the living God has, is working in human history. And you, O oh God, have sent a Savior and may they place their faith and trust in Jesus. And may all of us then live for Him with all of our heart, all of our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. So we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.